Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I think like a lot of us, I was living with a concrete wall between my head and my body, like proverbially speaking. And most of us, I think, only pay attention to what's happening in our body if something's wrong or when the wheels fall off the wagon, like when we get really sick and we get told that, right? We get told that by our healthcare system and our culture, go, 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 go until something breaks. Yet the body has this incredible wisdom and knowledge for us. It's telling us things that are very useful and valuable all the time if we listen, but I had never learned how to listen. And so yoga for me, you know, I hadn't grown up in a culture that also prioritized any sort of spirituality. I'd never really done yoga, maybe like once or twice, but it was just not something that I was exposed to. And I thought, you know, my first couple of yoga classes in New York, I thought it was like super strange, but I also noticed that I felt completely different, not just physically after yoga class, but mentally and emotionally as well. And so that was my kind of big aha light bulb moment for myself that we have this power to create a state change for ourselves every day in some capacity, maybe not all the way, but in some capacity. And I found that. And then that sent me on this journey into working in health. Hey there, it's Light Watkins and welcome back to the Light Watkins show. I'm coming in hot with a very inspiring episode for you this week. I got to have a conversation with my dear friend, Dr. Robin Burzen, who's the founder and CEO of a holistic healthcare platform called Parsley Health. Robin founded Parsley back in 2016 to address the rising tide of chronic disease in America by providing personalized holistic medicine that puts food and lifestyle and proactive diagnostic testing on the prescription pad next to medications. And it has since become the nation's leading holistic medical practice designed to help people overcome chronic conditions. Her mission is to make modern holistic medicine accessible to everyone anywhere. And what's interesting about her story is that becoming a doctor was not Robin's first career choice. She actually started off pursuing a legal career, working in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, and after going through what she called the daily coffee, splenda, stress, wine cycle, which is also known as modern living, Robin realized that pursuing law was not, in fact, her path. And she began practicing yoga And it was through yoga that she felt inspired to go to medical school. Then while in medical school, one day something told her to cold call this doctor who worked at the Columbia Medical School and see if he needed any volunteer help. His name was Dr. Oz. And this is before he became the Dr. Oz. And together, Dr. Oz and Robin produced his first radio show which was obviously like podcasting before podcasting. 
Anyway, that's where Robin met all of these functional medicine doctors who were being interviewed by Dr. Oz, and she was also responsible for some of the research. So she was reading four to five books a week on holistic health care. And she eventually continued down that path herself. And then cut two years later, she's a primary care physician. And Robin is seeing the same diagnosis over and over. Anxiety, fatigue, anxiety, fatigue. And she wanted to sincerely become more than just a prescription writer. She wanted to help more people. She wanted to get into lifestyle recommendations that could help make a bigger difference than medication, such as exercise and diet and meditation and having a hobby and daily walking. And anyway, what I love about Robin's story is that she's a regular person. She's a mom. She's got three kids. Uh, She didn't know what she was doing when she created her platform. She was just figuring it out. It was touch and go for a while. She almost lost her funding. But she was insistent on being the change that she wanted to see. And I think that's the really big takeaway from all of this is that at the end of the day, no matter what we're doing for living, if we want to live our path and purpose, we have to figure out a way to take steps in the direction of becoming the change that we want to see. And Robin's life is a great example of someone who did that and who's who's still very much doing that. Also, her book that came out in January of 2022 called State Change is one of the best introductions to functional medicine and holistic healthcare that I've ever read. If you've never experienced a functional medicine doctor and gone through the intake and gotten into your lifestyle and how that could be affecting your health, it's a great read for diagnosing how that world actually works, and it can give you all kinds of insights into what might be going on with your health beyond medications you may be taking. And she does an excellent job of explaining how your immune system works and how your digestive system works and why what you eat really does matter when it comes to your mood and your overall health. I think you're going to get a lot out of listening to this episode. And Dr. Burson is just an awesome person. Granted, I'm biased. She's a friend of mine. But I wouldn't bring somebody on here who I did not think would make a huge impact and and provide a lot of value and leave you feeling inspired. So I'm happy to call her a friend. I'm happy that she's a guest on the show. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to this conversation with Dr. Robin Burson. Robin, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. It's an honor to have you here. We've known each other for... I don't know how many years now, but as oftentimes happens when I have a friend on the show, I get to go and do some deep digging into their backstory and I come up with all kinds of, I have no idea you work with Dr. Oz. I had no idea you used to be in the legal industry and and you became a doctor later in life. And I'm super excited to just dive into your backstory. So thanks for coming on. Well, it's awesome to see you, friend. I've missed you and thank you for having me on. I like to start off in childhood. You grew up in Baltimore, I read. Yep. yep. So your dad was a physician. I know I grew up, my dad was an attorney. And one of the things he used to always say is, whatever you do, don't become an attorney. So what was your dad talking about back then? <laughs> because you initially did not go down the path of being an, a physician. So what, what was the sort of ideology of your upbringing? You know, my parents were pretty cool. They were pretty open to me being whatever. They didn't encourage me to go into the law or medicine. My dad's a doctor, although he had been a lawyer before that. And then my mom was a a corporate lawyer. And so I think that they 
thought though, that I would maybe go into the law because they said I was really good at arguing. So your dad was was an attorney turned physician as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was never an attorney for the record. I had like a very, very brief stint as a paralegal where I quickly discovered that I was not like as my first job out of college that I was not equipped to be in the law or that it just was not for me. So I did not go to law school. I did not go down the path that my dad did. My dad actually practiced law, but yeah, I had the briefest taste and was clear that somebody should definitely practice securities fraud or prosecute securities fraud, but it should not be me. That was my conclusion. I like to tell stories of people who transition, and I want you to just go into a little more detail around this whole coffee, Splenda, wine cycle. And what does it feel like when you're doing something that doesn't feel aligned? Like, what does that actually feel like? What are some practical real world symptoms of that? How did you know that that wasn't your path? You know, I definitely lived my way to that answer. I didn't grow up. I grew up in Baltimore, like you said. And then the 80s and 90s, there wasn't a culture of wellness. There wasn't a culture of self-care. There wasn't a conversation about mental health. There wasn't a conversation about physical health. Physical health was about like being fit, playing sports, looking good. Maybe that's how we thought about it. And so what that translated into, I think in my early years, especially after undergrad was just feeling kind of lost, feeling wired and tired, feeling disconnected to my passions and what I wanted to do with my life and feeling probably this low grade anxiety all the time. And it wasn't to the degree that I couldn't function. And I have patients who do experience that, but I think it was a level that a lot of people live with and think is normal. And I got pretty clear pretty early on that I just didn't want to feel this way all the time. This didn't seem like the right way for my life trajectory to go. And I think I had that voice in my head saying that, but I was looking for a way out. You had a transition through yoga. Yeah. For me, that was the discovery moment. It was a moment of breathing deeply, slowing down, getting out of my head and into my body. I think like a lot of us, I was living with a concrete wall between my head and my body, like proverbially speaking. And most of us, I think, only pay attention to what's happening in our body if something's wrong or when the wheels fall off the wagon, like when we get really sick and we get told that, right? We get told that by our healthcare system and our culture, go, 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 go until something breaks. And yet the body has this incredible wisdom and knowledge for us. It's telling us things that are very, very useful and valuable all the time if we listen, but I had never learned how to listen. And so yoga for me, you know, I hadn't grown up in a culture that also prioritized any sort of spirituality. I'd never really done yoga, maybe like once or twice, but it was just not something that I was exposed to. And I thought, you know, my first couple of yoga classes in New York, I thought it was like super strange, but I also noticed that I felt completely different, not just physically after yoga class, but mentally and emotionally as well. And so that was my kind of big aha light bulb moment for myself that we have this power to create a state change for ourselves every day in some capacity, maybe not all the way, but in some capacity. And I found that. And then that sent me on this journey into working in health. What was it that gave you the courage, though, to pull the trigger on that, on that trajectory shift? 
because you had to go do a fifth year in college. So it wasn't like an easy transition. It's like a pretty big deal. It was a pretty big deal at the time. I soul searched a bunch because I sat there and I was working at the U.S. Attorney's Office, prosecuting securities fraud as a you know on the paralegal level, supporting the prosecutors really, and I knew I didn't really want to be doing that. That didn't feel right. It felt punitive, not helpful. And I wanted to be helpful. And so I sat down and I wrote down a lot, like, what do I want to spend my time doing? What do I like to do? I like to be on my feet. I like to help people. And then I thought, well, what did I like in college? Because I think a lot of us also, if you have the, I mean, it's such a privilege to be able to go to school, but then you go to school and you kind of barrel your way through and you're told you're sort of supposed to know what you already want to do. And you take all these classes and what are they about? And I thought back to some of my favorite classes and I realized that, you know, I had taken this course on cancer, I think second year of school. And it was at a time when my grandmother had been dying of colon cancer and she had gotten colon cancer early in life through her history of smoking and diet, basically that, you know, hmm. 50% of all cancers are preventable. I learned in this course and she had developed colon cancer that way. And then she ultimately died of colon cancer early because she hadn't also gotten the right preventive screening. She hadn't gotten colonoscopy early enough. And in that class, I think I took that class because she was sick at the time. It was sort of outside of the scope of, you know, whatever it was I thought I was supposed to be focusing on at the time. And when I looked back at school and I remember taking that class and writing a paper on a holistic approaches to cancer therapy that had won an award at school at that time and kind of dug into other things I was interested in, I think I sort of started to say, oh, I'm interested in health and I like doing medical research bizarrely. And I like understanding the biology of these disease processes and I'm interested in public health. And so it took me a beat to tease those things out, but between yoga and those memories, it started to feel like a clue and a pattern. And so I pursued that into switching jobs into a psych research job at NYU School of Medicine, where I wasn't so sure I was interested in psych. And I ultimately did not, you know, go into psych. I trained in internal medicine, but I got some experience with patients and I got some experience in a medical hospital setting and I got some experience in healthcare in that job. And that was enough for me to say, okay, yeah, (laughs) like this makes sense. I want to do this. So I think it was a matter of listening to myself, trying something, being willing to fail, like be knowing that maybe I would have taken that job at NYU and I don't know, hated it and not said, no, this isn't for me either. But it was the process of, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? And then just trying to follow my heart. Speaking of experience, can you share the story of how you started working with Dr. Oz? I just, I just love that story. <laughs> yes. So for those of you listening, I was the first producer for Dr. Oz's first radio show before he had a TV show. So in these days, he was mostly a cardiac surgeon at Columbia. That was like his main job. And then he, at the time, he was writing some of his first bestsellers and he was on Oprah, the Oprah show, best show ever on television, as far as I'm concerned. He was on the Oprah show many times a year at this point, but he wasn't sort of famous the way that he later became. And he was going to do a radio show with Oprah. And I was back in my undergrad, my fifth year of college, taking bio and orgo and physics and all the courses I hadn't taken because I hadn't been pre-med in undergrad originally. So I had to go back and do all that, which is a total pain. But I was doing that and I needed a job and I wanted to be back in New York. So I was researching who is doing 
integrative medicine research and who is doing really cool kinds of public health research and interesting research at Columbia. Maybe I can get a research job. Had no idea who he was, looked up his email address on Columbia's website and sent him a cold email and attached my resume at the last second. Because he had gone to Penn, I think, for med school, and I was there for undergrad and post back. And so I said, Hey, I went to your same school, and I'm smart, I guess. And, you know, I need a job in healthcare. And I've already done psych research, I've already done some research at NYU. So he called me <laughs> and told me he was going to start this radio show working with Oprah. And my dad, who's a doctor, is like, Who? is this person? Is this like a real person? And I was like, I think so. I'm looking him up. I'm like, he has all these degrees. Seems like he's a surgeon. Seems neat. So I took the job and it was awesome. I learned so much there and I'm really grateful for the experience. You were volunteering. Like you told him that that was your offers. I would love to just volunteer for you in whatever way I can help you. And it wasn't like you were asking for him for a paid job or anything like that, which I thought was really cool that you did that and it paid off. But he said something while you guys were working together that really stuck with you, which is about a bagel. (laughs) Yes. We were doing practice recordings for the show. You know, at that time he had never hosted a radio show before. So he was learning and we were all learning how to do this. And we were in New York Mm -hmm. and the Oprah team were all remote in Chicago. It was like, early days of remote work. These were like podcasts before podcasts was a thing, by the way. That was like what this was Mm -hmm. effectively. But we would never have used that word then, which is weird to think about now. And we were doing a practice run, I think, on nutrition and talking about the insulin response for refined carbohydrates. And he said, eating a bagel plain is like throwing a grenade in your stomach. And you'd be better off putting on some butter or some cream cheese or some sort of fat to slow down your insulin response to keep your blood sugar spikes lower. And I thought about the way I thought about nutrition for like literally my entire life. You know, everything we learned in the 80s and 90s, don't eat any fat, carbs are fine. And it threw all of that upside down and just made me realize, you know, here I am trying to go to med school. I wasn't in med school yet at this point, trying to be in health. I know clearly nothing about health and what it is that I'm eating every day and how it's impacting my body. How on earth does anybody else know this too? And I was just so fascinated by all of the information that I got to learn from him. And and really a lot of it came from reading the books of all the people who would be guests on the show. And so I would have to read all their books every week. I'd read five books a week. I'd summarize them. I'd do all the notes So that he, you know, he's a very busy man. He had to be sort of come in and ready to record these shows. And so that was my part of my job. And what an opportunity to read so much and learn, you know, as your part of your job. So it was, it was amazing. What were you most impressed with about that experience working with Dr. Oz? So many things. First of all, how many really smart, incredible scientists and physicians and public health leaders, like all the people who came on to that show as guests were like extraordinary people whom I got to meet from Oprah herself and Gail King to all these people in the medical field who were trying to pull together information in a way that was salient and actionable and interesting. And, you know, I give Dr. Oz and Oprah so much credit because at that time, no one else had ever said, could health information be entertaining and interesting. This is like before the wellness movement. This is before all the blogs. This is before the podcasts. And no one had tried to say, how do we 
make health information something that anyone could have access to and own and use in their daily lives. And that was super cool. I learned so much about how to communicate, I think, health information in a way that's interesting and actionable, both from him and from Oprah, but also from, again, all the guests on the show. And so it's such an amazing education, truly. Let's cut to medical school now. You have an aspiration to become a primary care physician, I believe. And you overheard, well, one of your professors made a comment about why would anybody come to Columbia Medical School in hopes of becoming a primary care physician? Because obviously, those are the physicians that are least likely to be reimbursed by insurance companies, and it's not very lucrative and blah, blah, blah. So talk a little bit about your motivation to become primary care physician and how you were able to sort of navigate that snobby attitude around doing something a little bit more specialized. I was the daughter of a primary care physician. My dad was a pre-CP. And I don't think I really understood when I went to med school that these different fields were valued so differently and that surgeons were considered these like gods and that fields like ophthalmology and dermatology were paid these like huge sums of money. And everyone Mm -hmm. would make fun of the people who wanted to go into those fields that they just wanted the like easy cash money fields. I just didn't know, you know, you know, you're a kid, you're just going to school, you want to learn, you want to help people. I didn't know that these fields, you know, fairly or unfairly in many cases, candidly, have these stereotypes, right? And we need all these fields. But I didn't understand that those biases were what they were. And so I'm in my third year, I guess, of medical school, which is the year that traditionally you spend, you know, five, six weeks in each specialty, internal medicine and OBGYN and surgery. And you're there to help. And then you're also there to learn what it's all about. And in a neurosurgery OR, the neurosurgeon's there and the skull is open. And he's literally like dangling a tumor off of a forcep. And this sounds really grotesque, I'm sure, if anyone's listening to this. And I don't mean to be laughing, but if you think about the absurdity of the moment, that's why I'm smiling. Because it was just sort of, as students, you're just standing there with your eyes wide open, like can't believe what you're seeing. Also can't believe you're just sort of having a conversation with this person as they're going through this procedure. It's sort of amazing. And he asked each of us what we wanted to go into. And one of the other women in my student group said primary care. And he said, why would you want to do that? That's such a waste of a spot at Columbia. And so I quickly changed my answer. (laughs) I can't remember what I said. I think I said, I wasn't sure yet, but in that moment was a realization and an important one, not just of some of the sort of stereotypes in medicine, but also of just how we as an or as a country have valued the most important part of medicine, which is our primary care field, which is there to really be the one that knows us and takes care of us. And yet it's paid the least and sort of taken the least seriously. And that really doesn't make sense when you think about a country where we talk a lot about rising healthcare costs and chronic disease ex- exploding. We have it sort of backwards. And so it was a big wake-up call. Can we talk a little bit about the early pre-Parsley days of you as a practicing doctor? Talk about the business of medicine. Like, you know, a lot of these appointments only last for 10 or 15 minutes and a lot of prescriptions are getting prescribed. Like what's going on behind the scenes that the patient would not know about that is ultimately unsustainable for everybody's 
highest and best good? So, you know, when I was in my training at Columbia, Mount Sinai, amazing places here in New York, and especially in our outpatient clinic. So a a bunch of the training you do is in the hospital where people are already, you know, admitted for very serious conditions. And then a bunch of it's outpatient where, you know, you think of like you and me going to the doctor and most Mm -hmm. patient care in our country is happening outpatient, right? It's happening in clinics. It's not the majority isn't happening in hospitals, but in those clinics, I remember I had 15 minute visits with a patient and those visits were so rushed. You were trying to do so much in those visits and you do this like quick, basic physical exam and you figure out all the stuff that's going on and everything that's happened since the last time they were saw you and all the specialists they saw and the procedures that they had and what drugs are they taking? And are they actually taking those medications? I mean, it was like, it felt like just a race to the finish line. And I would spend two of those 15 minutes, like two of those very precious 15 minutes, printing out prescriptions four to a page and handing somebody a stack of two, three, four, sometimes five pages of prescriptions, four to a page for drugs and referrals to specialists. And the data said that 50% of drugs are never even filled at the pharmacy. No one even picks them up. And the specialist visits would take months to get to and result in another procedure and maybe an added another drug. And then they'd be on back to me. And I saw that all the things I was writing prescriptions and referrals for, high blood sugar, high blood pressure, migraine headaches, joint pain, autoimmune conditions, infertility, anxiety and depression, gastrointestinal issues, hormone stuff, all of it. The things that everyone is living with for years and maybe decades, all of us, that these conditions were highly interrelated to each other. They were highly multifactorial. They were very dependent on what we were eating and how we were moving and how we were managing stress. And yet there was no place on my prescription pad for food in any serious way or for movement or for meditation or for any of the things that were the root cause drivers of some of these conditions, let alone did I have nowhere near enough time with a patient to ever address those things. And so what I saw was that we'd created a revolving door between primary care and specialists that was just spinning faster and faster and faster while people got sicker and sicker and had a longer and longer and longer list of drugs to take. And I was just like, gosh, this is not going to work. Like this is not working. And so that really inspired me to say, what would a system look like that fixed a lot of this if we were to sort of start fresh, start anew, start outside the system, be a little bit radical in the way that we want to approach it and do something totally different. And that was a huge learning. I'm sure you're not the first physician to think about this. What what, what do you think made you take those next steps to actually start this platform? I mean, why you? Is it your exposure to Dr. Oz? Did you have some kind of tech relationships (laughs) or? Uh, You know, what's that saying? If not me. Was it the yoga? Was it the Vipassana course? I think it was all those things. I think it was back to knowing about functional medicine from Dr. Mark Hyman, who I met when I worked for Dr. Oz and had sent me the Institute for Mm. Functional Medicine's textbook. And so I knew that there was another way of practicing medicine that was effective, that existed, right? It might not have been widely available, but it did exist. 
I had started another company in end of med school and early part of my residency with a friend from medical school and in the tech space in healthcare. He went on to run that company for a long time. It's still out there. And we built a piece of software to help better coordinate care in hospitals. But the experience of starting that company in medical school, I think, you know, meeting my co-founder and he had had two companies before medical school. So I was exposed to someone who said, Hey, I, I've started companies. I was like, all right, there's not a lot of this, but it is possible. It exists, right? You can start something from nothing. And so I'd had a little bit of experience by the time I started Parsley of what it was like to get a company off the ground from literally idea in your head to forming a company, forming an organization, you know, building a product, raising a little bit of money. I had seen that. Not very much, right? Like let's I just, I was in that company for a, a little while, but I'd seen it and had some exposure. And so I think it was those things coupled with my passion for seeing that this care had to be better and thinking back to my grandmother, how Yes, it would have been way better if she had gotten a colonoscopy on time, which is a life-saving screening intervention, not or, but and, and so she needed better primary care than she had had. However, and she needed functional medicine to change the way she ate and lived so that she didn't get colon cancer in the first place. And so Mm -hmm. it was just this combination of having this light bulb moment, seeing the forest for the trees, thinking about what could be possible. And enough exposure to people and places who said, hey, let's do this a different way. I mean, even the radio show that we did with Dr. Oz and Harpo or Oprah's production company was the startup in and of itself. It was something that had never existed before that we I was in the first year of getting off the ground. So I don't know. All those things came together. You've mentioned in your book, the story of your health is the story of your life. And for those listeners who've never had exposure to a functional medicine doctor, I want to just talk about some of the lifestyle changes that people can make and how certain things may be affecting them that they have no idea about. You mentioned that two of the most common diseases that you would see in your patients were anxiety and fatigue. And I was curious, I obviously... We know what fatigue is, but what is the medical definition of fatigue? How does someone know they're in that category of fatigue? Right. Like, am I just tired or am I like medically tired? Yes. So we talk about (laughs) fatigue, adrenal fatigue, burnout, right? And the World Health Organization has, you know, classified burnout as a real medical condition and a real problem. Mm -hmm. So the way that we define it is that if everyone has a day where they feel tired, that happens. But if you feel tired most of the day, every day, it's interfering with your ability to get through your life. It could be a sign of depression. It could be a sign of sleep deprivation. It could be a sign of a hormone imbalance, like a thyroid or adrenal issue. It could be a sign of a nutrient deficiency. And so if this is ongoing for you and really interrupting your quality of life and your ability to do the things you like to do, hold the job, hold relationships, enjoy your existence here on this planet, then it's a real problem and something that's more than just, maybe I didn't get a good night's sleep last night. Speaking of which, 
You also mentioned that the perfect temperature for sleeping is about 67 to 69 degrees. So I'm in a situation now where I normally sleep well. I'm in Mexico City. There's no air conditioning here. And it's like 80 degrees. So I have a fan, but I find it very difficult to get into that deep quality sleep that I'm used to. Is there a workaround for that if you don't have access to any kind of cooling mechanism to get the temperature down? Oh, it's really tough. If you're sleeping in a hot environment, you can do everything else that you can do, right? You can turn on your fan. You can sleep in light clothes, maybe just a sheet and not a big blanket. You can manage all the other factors you can control, like making sure it's dark, eye mask, earplugs, not eating too big of a meal too close to when you're going to bed so that your body isn't heating up in its digestive processes, kind of like right before bed, avoiding alcohol because alcohol interrupts our body's ability to reach that lower body temperature as well as lower heart rate. And you need those two things at night to reach full sleep cycles. So a lot of people don't realize that substances they may be using like alcohol, like nicotine are actually interrupting that ability. And then my favorite tool for you, especially given I get to talk to you today is meditation, right? Putting that your body and your head in a state of true rest and relaxation before bed can really help too. Even if you can't cool that room down to 67 degrees. And now there are these cooling pads that people buy that plug into the wall that actually cool your mattress and can help you just cool the mattress down if you don't have AC or even if you do. We have one. My husband really likes it. I like it a little bit less because it like, I don't know, I find it, I sort of find it funny, but I also run cooler than he does. So he really, really likes it. So check those out too. Say a little more about drugs and alcohol and the line between use and abuse. Cause you, you make a point in that in your book a few times. First of all, I want to separate addiction. So alcohol addiction or drug addiction is a disease. It's not a habit and not a choice. And then I think there's also a really great big group of people who are living somewhere in the gray zone of maybe they are not suffering from addiction, but there's alcohol or drug misuse or abuse in a way that's disruptive, even if they're not addicted. And this isn't a medical term, but I always ask people, are you using these substances to feel better or to feel even better? But if baseline you feel bad and you're using them to feel better, as opposed to even better, that might be a clue that the way in which we're relying on these substances to manage our stress is unhealthy. And in addition to that, I note that, you know, using them more than a couple days a week, if it becomes a regular habit, no matter who you are, even if you don't have any issues with addiction is depleting your health. So I recommend people keep it to two or three nights a week at most, if they're going to drink alcohol. And that's because your body needs time to recover, to detoxify. And even if you feel like you have a healthy relationship with alcohol, you're still disrupting your sleep. You're still disrupting your blood sugar. You're still dehydrating yourself. And it's still impacting how you feel on a daily basis when you're using it versus when you're not. So it's not about judging people. It's about offering people some insight into the things that they're doing that could be actually really sabotaging their ability to have the mental and emotional well-being that they're looking for. Hey there, really quickly. 
Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And if there was one takeaway from your book, I mean, there you have so much rich information in there, but as far as lifestyle change or diet change, I would take away that, hey, I need to really lower my sugar intake because sugar is Freddy Krueger, Boogeyman, Jason, all wrapped up into one for your body. So talk a little bit about how we've become all sugar addicts in our society and what yeah. that's doing to us. Sugar is the boogeyman. I'm just going to say it, or the boogie woman, or the boogie person. <laughs> the boogie woman. Um, whoever it is, it's it's a problem. So we eat an absolutely extraordinary amount of sugar every single day on average. And even those of us in the health and wellness world who feel like, hey, you know, I'm paying attention to this, or I'm doing my best. You get the New York City honking out there, people. You're still eating an incredible amount of sugar every day. And so many of our drinks and juices and smoothies and bars and all of these things have just a mother load of sugar in them beyond what is healthy. And we should be max consuming 25 grams a day, according to UCSF Sugar Science and all the research they've done. And most people are eating something like 70 something grams a day. And so why do we care? Well, what's happening in the body is that you are sending all of your systems into disarray. Chronically high blood sugar and eating too much sugar leads to chronic inflammation in the body. It leads to chronic inflammation in the brain, which is associated with anxiety. It is disrupting your gut microbiome and those bugs in your gut make good neurotransmitters that help balance your mood. It's disrupting your immune system's ability to function. It's sending your hormones out of whack and sending your menstrual cycles all over the place. And it's causing weight gain, right? So sugar in the quantities that we have become accustomed as a culture to eating is unhealthy. And it does take a lot of vigilance to move from a place where we are consuming that just sort of by default to not. But when we do 
our digestion gets better, our energy gets better. We fight off colds and flus better. We have more clarity and focus. We sleep better. And so it can really be transformative. And so I invite people to run that experiment for themselves for 30 days. And I have a 30 day plan in the back of the book, get let people get started and say, Hey, this isn't about bad or good. This isn't shoulds. This isn't, you know, getting mad at myself because that's all a waste of time. It's just about let's live this experiment for a month and see how we feel. And that can be just so instructive, not on an intellectual level, but on a, a visceral level, on a muscle memory basis. And it can be really powerful. That's another takeaway as a core principle from your work is that just telling people sugar is bad, cut back on sugar is not really going to do the trick. People will just like shrug their shoulders and just like, okay, but showing them why and how it connects in a real world way to kitchen table issues can be a lot more effective in getting people to adopt some of these healthier lifestyle habits and also just giving them the baby steps and not expecting them to make a complete 180 transformation overnight, which has been an issue of mine with some of the Ayurvedic practitioners I've seen. They give you all these protocols, you know, take all this stuff in the morning, take all this before you meditate, take all this at night. It's just like, dude, I travel. I'm not going to be able to take, I'm not going to take, I mean, I, theoretically I could take it, but I'm not going to, or I know I'm not going to. So you have to take the baby step approach, I think, with most sort of average people who aren't really their life isn't really centered around wellness and nutrition. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like my life is hard to center around wellness and nutrition. You know, I've got a company and I have three little kids. I'm like everybody else. I'm a mile a minute and too much to do. And one thing after another, and just dealing with what is the crazy pace of modern life as, as a mom and, and as a human being. And so I can't be perfect and I can't do all this stuff, but I've experimented enough for myself to see when I generally eat this way, I feel more capable of living this life. And if I'm eating processed food and a lot of refined carbs and takeout and stuff. I mean, I feel foggy. I feel exhausted. I feel irritable. I want to snap at everyone. (laughs) And so we've all been there. And so when I know I have a choice of eat this and feel crappy and eat this and feel good so I can keep going, that's the powerful place that I want for everyone to know what the choices are to know. And it's not that you're never going to eat the takeout or the pizza or the sugar. It's just that you're making that choice with awareness of what is good for you on a regular basis. Yeah. And then you said something else. You said most people aren't playing with a full nutritional deck, which is an amazing saying. Let's say someone is interested in making a transition, but they're still eating a little bit of pizza, a little bit of the standard American diet. How effective would supplements be? Because I fall into that first category you mentioned in your book, which is most people think supplements are hocus pocus. And then other people have them overflowing out of their drawers. But I think the reason why I thought that was because just like you said, most of the sort of stuff you find in the grocery stores, they don't feel like they're that effective because they don't have the active ingredient or it's been watered down or diluted in some way. So just talk a little bit about how you think about supplements when it comes to aiding in this transition. It's exactly as you said, right? Some people think they're totally worthless and others have like drawers full that they are, you know, lost in their own houses in their supplements. And 
it's neither, right? It's neither of those things. And most of the supplements on our shelves are not what they say they are. They're poor quality. They have low bioavailability. They have low quantities of the active ingredient. It's like taking an antibiotic for for your sinus infection, but only taking a quarter of it and wondering why the infection doesn't go away, right? That's not going to work. So evidence-based supplementation that is medical grade, meaning professional grade supplements prescribed by a doctor or licensed provider who knows what they're doing and is educated and supplement literate can be really powerful tools. Magnesium glycinate or magnesium glycinate can be a beautiful sleep aid. You're not taking them to correct a magnesium deficiency. You're taking them because it helps you sleep in a non-addictive, non-dangerous way. How awesome is that? We use the Johns Hopkins protocol for treating something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is when you get sort of an overgrowth of bad bacteria in the gut from taking too many antibiotics or eating too much sugar. And there's an herbal protocol of professional grade herbs (laughs) that are made in pharma grade facilities that can be really effective for treating that issue and in an evidence-based way, but it's neither take a whole bunch of supplements and hope and pray nor don't take any, I believe, and and partially in my practice, we believe use evidence-based supplementation as therapeutic tools for a period of time to address a specific need. And then they can be really effective. And then they can really help people. I, for instance, personally, and many people do have a genetic variant called MTHFR. It's not a mutation. It's just a variant. We all have a different kinds, sort of, we all have different flavors of MTHFR. And my flavors are such that I am slower at a process called methylation, and therefore I make less of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And taking a certain type of B vitamin, a methylated B vitamin, really helps me and absolutely helps my mood. It's also important for me to take that type of B vitamin as my prenatal or when pregnant, because that's the type that my body needs. So it's just important, I think, to understand that supplements can be really powerful tools if used in the right way and if prescribed. And at partially we find we actually end up helping people save money on supplements because instead of them sort of going to the drugstore or the grocery store and staring at that like crazy wall of supplements we've all seen and like throwing a bunch of useless stuff in your cart, we say, you know, don't do that. Let's just use the ones that are going to work for the right purpose. And one of the most effective supplements with zero side effects, and you don't need a prescription for it, is exercise. Yes. <laughs> and you, you recommend 20 minutes a day, just 20 minutes. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, it was cool to go back to the research on exercise and mental health because I had seen this and I sort of knew this, but, you know, sometimes you go back and actually read the thing and you're like, oh, yeah. The research on exercise for mental health is extremely well-established and powerful. And the evidence base to show that exercise improves depression and anxiety in 95%, whereas antidepressants medications work in anywhere from 40 to 60%, was just such a good reminder to go back and see. It's not that the medications can't aren't important. They can be really powerful and important tools. They absolutely can. We prescribe them too. But as a medical community, based on the evidence, we should be prescribing exercise to every single person as first-line therapy who's experiencing any form of anxiety, depression, chronic fatigue. And digging into the why of that, I was reminded that the body was designed to process emotions through movement. 
We were designed to process emotions through movement. And when we sit all day, 11 hours a day, staring at screens, we never process our emotions. And so they get stuck and they begin to create damage in the body. And that might sound esoteric or sort of, hey, is that like woo? And it's really not. There's actually a very clear biological mechanism by which that happens. And so we talk about that in the book. And, you know, I loved writing the book because I love walking people very simply through the science, because I find that when people understand the science of what's happening in their bodies, we get out of the should territory. Oh, I'm bad. I didn't exercise today. And we get into the, oh, I know that when I exercise and when I move my body, whether it's yoga or weight training or HIIT or a cardio or whatever I'm deciding to do, I am moving my emotions out and through and that I am going to have better sleep and better mental health. And that's a different place to be. And when you said damage in the body, you reminded me of something else that was in the book. You said your issues are in your tissues. And I think you were relating that to the effects of meditation, but can we talk a little bit about that? When we have a thought, that thought could be so brief, right? You don't even register it on the like billboard of your brain, right? It might even just be subconscious, but it could be a thought like, oh, I'm really nervous to do this podcast. I haven't done a podcast in a while and light's really cool. I hope I do a good job or anything that I'm nervous or scared or angry about. And so I have a thought and then I have an emotional reaction to a thought. And all of this happens in a split second. And that emotional reaction is a biochemical wave of neurotransmitters that flows through my entire body, touching every single cell that takes about 48 hours to clear. And so when we have emotions, we have biochemical reactions that happen in our body. Our emotions aren't just in our heads. They are living in our bodies. And that wave of neurotransmitters sets off a whole cascade of reactions and can increase our heart rate and our blood pressure and our blood sugar. And if that happens once in a while, that's fine. But if that's happening all the time, all day long, you're stressed. All day long, you're running from your email lion inbox situation or whatever it is. You're reading the news or looking at social media and experiencing FOMO or self-doubt, whatever it is that constant barrage of emotional waves of neurotransmitters is impacting all of your other body systems. And over time that can create damage and weakness in the tissues. Even something as simple as increasing cortisol suppresses our immune system. And when our immune system suppressed, we have a slower time healing. And so connecting it all the way through is I think, again, just an example of where it can be really powerful to understand that and then understand how meditation and exercise allow you to, what meditation does is it kind of remaps and fills in those ruts in the road of your brain. So that instead of having the Mm -hmm. same thoughts over and over again, you can start to have different kinds of thoughts so that you can start to have different kinds of emotional reactions so that your body can begin to heal. When you were starting Parsley in 2015 slash 16, you know, I read, I read one of Elon Musk's biographies and he talked about how, and he started Tesla, you know, he was like on the brink of losing everything, going bankrupt, you know, and all of that. And I'm just curious what your experience was, because, you know, your mom, 
you're seeing patients, your wife, you're trying to start this company. I'm sure there was a lot of, a lot going on and people may look at you now, you've gotten funding, it's just turned into this huge thing. It looks very obvious now in hindsight, right? Take us a little bit behind the scenes in the early days. What was that like when you were getting that off the ground while trying to do everything else? You know, in 2016, I didn't have kids yet. So now sometimes I'm like, oh. <laughs> you had all the time in the world then. <laughs> that was why I had the time and energy to come up with this harebrained scheme. And now like the train has left the station and it's too late. I'm kidding, sort of people. But yes, I did not have kids yet. 2016 is sort of when I had been experimenting with like a medical practice that was just me before that. But then 2016, we like formed the company. We started hiring some people. We started seeing about raising some money. And I've learned so much. It is so hard. I No one taught me how to fundraise. No one taught me how to think about operations and legal and real estate and marketing and healthcare compliance laws and how to deal with insurance companies and like all of the different things that I've had to learn along the way. And so, I mean, I remember... 2017, when I was pregnant, and that was when we raised like our first little seed round of funding was sort of like end of 2016 going into 2017. I was trying to close this first round of funding then. And I really had no idea how to raise money at this point. I'd been exposed to it a little bit in my first startup, but like not very much. And I'd never been responsible for it on my own. And I didn't have, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a woman, I'm in New York, I'm not somebody with like Silicon Valley connections. And so I was really in over my head and I was due with the baby in February. I was trying to close the round before baby. I was like, I'm just going to close money and have the baby. Everything's going to work out peachy. And that did not happen. So I'm freaking out (laughs) after I had my son thinking this whole thing is over. Who was I to start this company? I don't know what I'm doing. I felt like I was sort of sliding down the side of like a building by my fingernails. It was like one of those moments. I've got this new baby. I had some money committed, but not enough. And I went to breakfast with one of my advisors and he was a healthcare guy and a startup guy. One of those people who knew how to talk to all the Silicon Valley people. And he was like, Robin, where's the Robin I know who could give like a Ted talk in your sleep, pull yourself together and go raise some effing money. And I kind of, you know, needed a kick in the pants basically to realize that there are no rules. It didn't all have to happen by a certain date that I had arbitrarily set in my mind that there wasn't one way to do things. And maybe other people would raise more money than me or raise faster money than me or have a better business plan than me. But you know what? I knew that this medicine needed to exist in the world and that people needed this care. And so I sort of pulled myself together and dusted myself off and (laughs) wiped off the tears and went back out there and ended up closing more money than I had originally intended on raising from better investors who were ended up being instrumental in us being able to raise our first big round of funding in 2018, which was our series A, which is when we really started about four years ago, kind of growing this thing. So that was it, but it taught me just to kind of get back up, even when I've been knocked down or I've knocked myself down, or I've decided that I'm knocked down and to find the resilience to keep building this thing for the patients who need us. How has your idea of success evolved since college up until now? 
it's changed so much. You know, in college, I think I thought of success as having a certain degree or having a great job, basically. I think that's what I thought it was. And now I would say it's really about living my life with meaning and purpose. And since I've had kids, it's changed again to be just about being able to spend time with my family and being able to like be on the journey with them, which I could never have imagined before I had them. So those are the things now, you know, healthcare companies are really hard and all companies are hard, but like, there are honestly days where I'm like, I just wish I sold socks. Like selling socks seems a lot easier than selling, trying to like basically Trojan horse holistic medicine into the healthcare system. But I wouldn't do anything else. This is that's the meaning and purpose part. And then when that's all hard and and challenging, as it still is, every year presents new challenges and new moments when I have no idea what to do. I then now have this really cool family that I get to look at and just be endlessly excited about. Final question. So current day Robin can go back and whisper some words of wisdom to 2016, Robin, what do you tell yourself, your younger self? First of all, you're building something amazing. You're building something people need. You're building something that will have incredible outcomes data to back it up. So keep going because all these patients you're seeing, there's actually real data coming that's going to show how powerful this care is. And I think the thing that my like older self will always keep telling my younger self is that it all turns out so much better than you ever could have imagined. So that like, whatever you're imagining, it's going to be even better than that. Beautiful. Well, your book, State Change, I've been to see a couple of functional medicine practitioners. I've done telemedicine as well. And I think it's the closest that you can get to being able to not self-diagnose because you obviously don't want to, you want to get a professional diagnosis, but just being able to kind of understand your body a little bit better without being overwhelmed by too many scientific terms that you have to look up and you do a really great job of making it accessible and including a lot of the basic questions that I think everybody should be asking themselves when it comes to exercise and diet and lifestyle. So if that was your intention, then I say job well done because that's exactly what I got from it. And I hope everybody listening to this gets a chance to pick up the book. And let's say somebody picks up the book and they're really into it and they want to take it a step further and get some professional input. What should they do? Well, thank you for that because that was the goal. And then, you know, if you're looking to see, you know, holistic primary care, functional primary care, Parsley Health is that. We're available nationwide. We're starting to take some insurance. And if we don't take insurance, the monthly fee includes all your visits with the doctor and all your visits with the health coach and unlimited kind of always on care. So parsleyhealth.com, we're in almost every state and we have tens of thousands of patients nationwide working with us. So I hope you'll check it out and we can give you some help and Otherwise, definitely check out the book because there are a lot of very easy, very actionable, very simple things that you can get started on just on your own. Parsley is a garnish. You put it on a dish to make the dish, I guess, to punch it up a little bit. Was that part of the intention behind Parsley or what what was the story with that? No, I mean, it was really- It was just available on godaddy.com and you thought, I'm going to do that. Wasn't even available. I had to end up going and buying it. 
No, it was, you know, <laughs> I wanted something bright and fresh and clean and memorable and green that people would just be easy to say and easy to remember. And I was hanging out with my best girlfriend from growing up in Baltimore and she like knows who celebrities are and, you know, reads people magazine. And I like live under a rock a bit when it comes to that stuff. So I said a bunch of names to her and I said, parsley health. And she's like, I like that. And I was like, well, if you like it, then the world will too. And then it's done. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing the story and congratulations on all of your achievements and, and all the ways that you're giving back to the world. And I'm honored to be able to call you a friend. So thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to call you a friend. Thank you for having me on this. It's just an honor to be on the podcast. Thank you for tuning in to my conversation with Dr. Robin Burson. You can get her book, State Change, everywhere books are sold. And you can follow Robin on social media at Robin Burson, M-D. That's R-O-B-I-N-B-E-R-Z-I-N. MD. And of course, we put links to everything in the show notes, which you can always find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the Light Watkins show, we've got an incredible archives of past interviews with luminaries like director Ava DuVernay, Yoga with Adrian founder Adrian Mishler, slam poet champion Saul Williams, War of Art author Stephen Pressfield, internet poet sensation Young Pueblo, and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. You'll see a drop down menu at the top of the page where you can search my past episodes by subjects like people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges or people who have taken a leap of faith. And you can get a list of all of those specific episodes at that link. Also, you can now watch these podcast episodes on YouTube. I post every episode on my YouTube channel, which you can find by just going to YouTube and searching Light Watkins Podcast. And if you like the raw, unedited version of podcasts, you can get those by joining my Happiness Insiders online community. This is a community of people who are working around the clock to cultivate happiness inside by using tools such as meditation, gratitude, and other inner practices. And so as a part of that community, you'll have access to my seven-day meditation kickstart, my 108-day meditation challenge, and there's a bunch of other challenges and masterclasses as well. And then finally, one way you can support this show, if you resonate and align with the mission of leaving people more inspired is you can leave a review or a rating and you can do it from your phone, from your device that you're listening to this right now. Just look at the screen of the device. If you don't have the Apple podcast app pulled up, pull it up and click on the name of this show, the Light Watkins show. And then you're just going to scroll down past those seven or eight previous episodes and you'll see a section with five blank stars And you're just going to tap that star all the way over on the right. And that's how you leave a rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, because I know that people who listen to this show like going the extra mile, you can leave a review of what you feel inspired by in these episodes. And that would be greatly appreciated. That way, when people are on the brink of giving up on their dream, when they are feeling 
like they don't have enough courage to overcome the fear to take a leap of faith and they go to the Apple podcast app and they say, you know what? I just want to listen to something that's going to inspire me. And they type in inspirational podcast because you left the review, because you left the rating, this show, these conversations are going to come up a lot higher in the search results because that's how they do it. They give the person searching the results from people who have said, hey, this is a great show. Everyone should listen to this show. So thank you in advance for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about somebody just like me, just like you, just a regular person taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting in your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith on your end. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.